Hello folks, I'm Joel Van Hoogen and this is the Bread of Life. Our program is supported by your gifts, but it's brought to you out of the heart of two ministries. One is Church Partnership Evangelism, where I'm the executive director and have been for over 30 years. We're a disciple-making ministry among the nations. To learn more about us, go to cpeonline.org or traincpe.org. The other sponsoring ministry is the Bread of Life Fellowship, where I'm the Bible teacher. We meet in the Old White Church in the Warm Springs area of Boise for worship every Sunday at 11 a.m. Please consider this my invitation for you to join us. For now, we take up a consideration from 1 Kings chapter 18 on the life of Elijah. God has sent a drought upon the nation of Israel. It's lasted three years. In that three years, those who brought on this drought because of their sins may have begun to see their part in the judgment. But they don't. And they rarely do. More often than not, those suffering from sin find a way to blame the messenger. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. God has come to Elijah and it's the third year of a drought that has been pronounced by Elijah in prophecy against Ahab and the sins of Israel. God has called Elijah to go and meet with Ahab and to declare to Ahab that this drought is about ready to come to an end and to kind of set up the situation going forward and how God is going to address this and bring an end to this drought. Elijah has gone down. He's confronted the administrator of Ahab's household, Obadiah, and Obadiah has now gone and told Ahab to make his way to where Elijah is. Now we have Ahab coming along the scene. You might remember the setting, and the scene is that the drought has been so severe that Ahab and Obadiah have gone out into the countryside to try to find some green grass to feed Ahab's horses and mules. He's the king of Israel, but he's actually more concerned in the drought, not for his people, but for his animals. And it's in this setting in which Elijah appears, and Ahab goes and meets with Elijah. And this is what we read in verse 17. And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Art thou he that troubles Israel, or is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. This three years of drought all begins because of a confrontation that Elijah has with Ahab in his court three years prior. You'll remember that Elijah shows up in the court of Ahab and says that there is a drought that's going to come upon the land and that it will not cease but by his word. As surely it will happen as the Lord who lives before whom I stand, this is what's going to happen. In other words, Elijah is establishing that this is something that the Lord has given him to proclaim, that he has a confidence that God is going to carry this out, that he is not impressed by the court and by the accoutrements of power that surround Ahab, but that he is most impressed as he gives this proclamation by the presence of the living God. He's before Ahab, but Elijah said it's before God that I stand right now. It's in God's presence that I say these things. And Well, the drought comes. It's underway. It struck Israel. It's all around them. It's not only all around Israel, but it's all around the nations that are around Israel. God has for three years hidden Elijah away from Ahab's attempts to discover him and find him and put him to death. And now these three years have come to an end and Elijah now encounters Ahab or Ahab encounters Elijah and we have this story, we have the verses that we've just read where Ahab accuses Elijah of being the one who's the troubler of Israel. Without an extensive introduction, let me just say the first point here, just looking at the life of Elijah, seeing that this began by this prophetic announcement that Elijah made to Ahab three years ago, 
let me make some comments about the prophet's life and work. That's, that'll be our first point of consideration. The prophet's life and work. And, and what we might say as a generality, and I, I know there are other things we can say about it, but as a generality, the work of the prophet is to proclaim the future in light of God's word. It's to, in a sense, declare what is coming and what God is doing and what God is going to do in light of or as an extension of the application of God's word. Without in mind, I want to say that the prophet's job is not that mysterious. It's not as challenging as you might think. Because God in his word has given a roadmap for the peace and blessing that he would place upon mankind. And God in his word has also mapped out where a person must not go or a nation must not go unless they come to a place of chaos and curses. And this map is the law that God has given us, the commands that God has given us. Basically, if you obey those laws, you get on the right side of a moral universe that God has created. If you disobey those laws, if you go against those laws, you don't live in agreement with that God, but you live in defiance of that God and His word, world, and you then suffer the consequences of living against the grain of a moral universe. You disobey those laws and you live in a world that is created by God, but you can't live in a world created by God, governed by the laws that God has set over it, and defying God and defying those laws without suffering as a result. You see the idea? So the prophet is a person who understands those laws, and he understands those rules, and he understands the consequences of obeying those laws, and he understands the consequences of disobeying those laws, and when he sees people perpetually disobeying those laws, he knows what's going to happen. He knows something of the future. He knows what's coming down the pipe. That's what exactly what takes place here in this passage. It's not actually that difficult. What's happened is that Elijah has added up and tallied up the math of the sin of Israel and the sin of Ahab, and he has, in a sense, declared the consequences of that. Now, it becomes more particular when we think about the exact time and the setting and some of the details of prophecy, but in general, as an overarching idea, the basic idea of declaring the prophetic outcomes of obedience or disobedience is not so difficult. God has declared a law. In that law, he's given an all-encompassing statement of the essence of that law. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6-5. It's found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The Lord Jesus took those two together and put them together and said, this is the sum of all of the law. You're to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? God has, in a sense, taken that basic law and he's actually extrapolated out from it applications of what that looks like, what it looks like to love God with all your heart and soul and strength and what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. And in essence, that's what the Ten Commandments are. They're just God extrapolating out and giving a further application of those laws. They're the laws, by the way, they're not arbitrary laws. They're absolute laws established by the absolute creator of the universe, and they're the laws that govern the moral mechanisms of life. How do I love God? Well, look at the Ten Commandments for a moment. How do I live my life in such a way that I express my love towards Him? Well, towards God, I have no other gods before me. I have God instead before me. I have His life before me. In fact, Everything that was prohibited in the law is just the negative side of a positive offering of God and giving himself to us. 
I'm not to make idols of him. I'm not to whittle God down to some manageable size for myself. Instead, I'm to have God before me in all of his fullness and all of his strength as he reveals himself. I'm not to take his name on my lips lightly or abuse that name to promote myself or to cast that name about to give an upper hand for my own points of personal influence. No, I'm not to take his name in that way. That's taking his name in vain. Instead, I'm to take that name and to claim it in all of its fullness as all of my life and all of my salvation and the provision for all that I need. I'm to regulate my days with a commitment to come to him and rest in him and live in him and live for him. Understanding that his holy presence is to be the constant pulse beat behind the rhythm of my life and I'm to live my life in rhythm with him. I'm to bow before God and I'm to yield to him as a loving heavenly father and as I bow before him as my father, I'm to live honoring my earthly parents simply as an expression of my submission and honor to God as the supreme father of all. Towards my neighbors, I'm to live out the attributes of this good God before them. I'm to live out an expression of this God that is before me, this God who I take for all of his fullness, this God whose name is on my lips as my very life, this God who is the one who's regulating the rhythms of all I do in my life. And as that happens, it expresses myself in the way now that I love my neighbor and I'm not to murder. Because God is the sovereign maker of all men, they bear his image. And I'm to honor his image in them. And the greatest sin that you can commit against an individual human being is to murder them. The seventh commandment is I'm not to commit adultery. These men who are made in his image are to live in covenant relationship with one another because God is a God of covenant relationship. And God has made it for us to live in peace and order under that covenant with one another. And the, the greatest sin that you can commit against an individual is to murder them. And the greatest sin that you can commit against a human society Bound by covenant is to commit adultery. It tears at the core of the order and peace that's to be expressed, living under the God of peace. Next, I'm not to steal from others. I'm to rest in the provision that God has made for me. I'm to exercise my God-given nature for acquisition and my God-given nature to hold dominion, but I'm to do it in utter submission to God and dependence upon Him and His rule and His provision for my life. I'm not to steal. I'm not to bear false witness because God is a God of truth. It's his word that brings life to me. And I'm not to use the words that he has given me to speak to defraud others or to create falsehoods that they live under. I'm to speak the truth. And the other thing is I'm not to covet, which is I'm not to desire what God has not given me, but given to others. I'm not to desire what God has not given me, but given to others. Because breaking this command and coveting will lead me to break all the other commands. Its basic attitude is that it loves self more than God and more than others, and I covet. Instead of being content with God and all that he's given me, and out of that contentment, living my life before others. Now, that's the moral law that governs the universe. And when you follow that law, God presses you into his blessings and into his life. And when you break that law, you tread into the ground of cursing and the prophet can tell the future simply because he knows those laws and he believes in a moral universe. And that's exactly what's taking place here in our story. That's what's happening in our story with Elijah. As I said before, he's just doing the math. He's following God's commands and God's word and he's simply presenting the tally to Ahab. And By the way, this is our part in the world as well, the world in which we live. 
Our obligation is to teach those under our influence that there is an absolute lawgiver who has given an absolute moral law and that disobedience to him has its consequences and obedience to him has its consequences as well. And we must say this to individuals when we can, but we must live this out before individuals because we can. Because God has transformed us and he's put the Savior in our lives and he lives with us so that our lives become a beacon of prophetic truth declaring God's laws and declaring that God is among us and that God can be experienced and can be enjoyed and God can be expressed from our lives. And when we do that, when we do that, we live a prophetic life. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he took the final penalty of the law for us in that place. But in so doing that, he also restored to us who believe in him all of the provisions that are found in the law of himself. He brought us to a place where through the power of Jesus Christ, we might live obediently to that law and we might lay claim in our experience to all of these provisions. Through Jesus Christ, we take God for ourselves and we bring him before us. Through Jesus Christ, we have him. We have him in all of his fullness. We have him in the fullness of his spirits and we want nothing. Thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest to you two websites you can visit. First, go to traincpe.org to learn about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. And to learn more about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may God bless you.